0: I'm Jason Von Medding.
1: And I'm Ksenia Cmoutena.
0: Welcome to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. Okay, everyone, welcome back to Disasters Deconstructed Podcast. We are up to episode 14, and it's Monday morning, and we're glad to be here, aren't we?
1: We are glad to be here, and we're excited to be here, you know, I haven't said excited for a while, so I thought I'll get it in there straight away.
0: Yeah, I don't know if you said it last week.
1: I'm not sure. I think you'll have to listen to the episode again, you know, and do the counting like you normally do.
0: Well, maybe you won't reach your record this week. Um, or oh, do uh, I get
1: like a allocation quota of how many times I can say excited?
0: Well, I haven't haven't implemented that yet. We'll see if you can self-regulate first.
1: Oh, wow. Th- that is a difficult task. You keep giving me this like challenging task. <laughs> um, you know, first you want me to say no to things. Now you want me to like stop saying excited. Oh, I don't know, Jason.
0: It's just for your own benefit. Like personal growth, you know?
1: Right. Well, I'll do that once I start reading fiction. So how about that? okay fine
0: (laughs) um okay so today we are continuing our series of episodes looking at groups and individuals that are sometimes framed as vulnerable or marginalized or at risk and listening to some ways in which we might challenge that framing and think about these groups a bit differently
1: well I guess, you know, we've been talking a lot about different vulnerabilities and disability is something we touched upon, but never really explored. And I I didn't really know much about disabilities in disaster studies, and the first time I really started considering it was at the Global Platform in 2017, you know, Jason, when we were in Cancun? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you remember, but um, there was one of the events where basically we went into the room, and there was this guy standing there with white sheets of paper. And he kind of gave us this white sheet of paper, and I realized immediately that there was Braille on it. And I asked him, I was just like, well, so what am I supposed to do with this, right? I can't read Braille. And he said, well, you've got to go and figure it out. So, of course, I was there with my friend Joe Rose, whom you know really well, so we, mm-hmm. um, we never give up. So we went and we, <laughs> uh, we figured that if we go to the, I think it was Net- Network for Disabilities and Disaster Risk mm-hmm. uh, booth. So we figured that if we go to them, they'll probably help us, right? So we went to them and yeah. they said, oh yeah, we have a guy who can read Braille, you know, he is there. So we went to the guy, he could read Braille, but he could only speak Spanish, which we yeah. couldn't speak. And so then we had to find somebody to translate. So basically it took us like an hour and a half, you know, to get the message yeah. on that white sheet and the message was the venue and the topic of the event that they were running, but basically they kind of made a great point of how difficult it is very often for people with disabilities to get information, right? Yeah. And, you know, I've never thought about it until then. It really, really, really never crossed my mind. And, well, I guess that kind of reflects my own privilege. So, um, <laughs> a long introduction, but today, disability in disasters, that is exactly what we are going to cover. And um, we would like to welcome Kirsten Lang, who is the program specialist on disability inclusive humanitarian action and UNICEF. Welcome, Kirsten thank you very much really happy to be here
0: welcome kirsten so um as ksenia said it seems like um this is something that's really becoming to the fore in our conversations about disasters um and for anyone who's listened to the podcast since we launched last june um, pretty much every week we end up talking about vulnerability we end up talking about root causes of um, disaster risk and And we've seen quite a lot of increase of research and discussion on vulnerable groups, marginalized groups, um, including children and women, but also disabilities. And so we wanted to talk to you today about why we're seeing this kind of shift towards understanding vulnerability better, hopefully, although people have been trying to make these points for many decades. So, Kirsten, do you have any thoughts about what the main enablers were to start talking about disabilities in the context of disaster?
2: Absolutely, and just to take a moment to say thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you today, because this is a topic I'm very passionate about and something that is increasingly getting attention, as as you mentioned, so really happy to be here. Perhaps before going into directly answering your question about enablers and why now, I just wanted to touch really briefly on this narrative around vulnerable groups Mm. in the context of disasters. So as you mentioned, People with disabilities are often described as one of numerous vulnerable groups who need special attention in disasters. Mm-hmm. So we often see response plans having lines like women, children, older people, people with disabilities, etc are particularly vulnerable. And often that that is the limit of the attention to people with disabilities in response plans. And this narrative really has two main problems. So, firstly, it assumes that people with disabilities and all these other groups are homogenous. It it doesn't recognise diversity among people with disabilities. We know that the experience of people with disabilities in disasters varies according to whether they are men, women, older people, young people, LGBTI persons, ethnic, religious minorities, etc. They're not a homogenous group. Um, secondly. It also assumes that vulnerability is inherent rather than being created. So this narrative that we see so often, it it labels people with disabilities, all people with disabilities as being vulnerable. It often doesn't identify exactly who is vulnerable, what they're vulnerable to, and probably most importantly, it doesn't explore why they are particularly vulnerable. So what this narrative that we often see actually does is very little to address the factors that are contributing to heightened risk. So in effect, maintaining the status quo in relation to vulnerability. Having said that, I wanna stress that it is true that people with disabilities are disproportionately impacted by disasters. So for example, some studies have shown that they're up to four times more likely to die in a disaster but this vulnerability is not inherent. It's created yeah. and it's created largely by the way that disaster preparedness and response is designed and delivered. So for example, if and, and you, you alluded to this as well, if information, including warning systems, are delivered in only one format, people with, some people with disabilities won't have access. Um, people with yeah. disabilities can have more difficulty evacuating because of inaccessible evacuation routes, um, loss or damage to their assistive devices, and often shelters are inaccessible. Most importantly, though, people with disabilities are often excluded from decision-making processes for disaster preparedness and response, which means that their requirements, including for accessibility, are often not recognised. So that long introduction brings me to your question Mm. of the main enabler to the increased attention we're seeing now to people with disabilities and disasters. Um, One key turning point was the adoption of the Sendai Framework for disaster risk reduction in 2015. So the the Sendai Framework makes inclusion of people with disabilities an explicit requirement in disaster risk reduction. And this significant shift was made possible by the participation of people with disabilities themselves in the third World Conference on DRR in Sendai. 2015 conference venues were accessible processes were accessible and this enabled people with disabilities to have an active role in the proceedings to share their experience to share their knowledge and this really resulted in a framework that has done a lot to advance attention to this issue mm. the other key milestone and this is this is the last point I'll I'll add on this question The other key milestone was the World Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul in 2016. And with that, the wide endorsement of the Charter on inclusion of persons with disabilities in humanitarian action. Now, this really provided an important foundation for the establishment of a task team on inclusion of persons with disabilities in humanitarian action, which was tasked with developing global guidelines on the topic. How crucial to this was that the task team was co-chaired by the world's largest organisation of people with disabilities, the International Disability Alliance. And the three-year consultation process to develop the guidelines included extensive involvement by people with disabilities in all regions of the world. And this was people with disabilities who had been affected by disasters themselves, for example, in the Pacific. Mm. The guidelines were launched in November last year and they're now the first global humanitarian guidelines that were developed by people with disabilities and they've really cemented that central role that people with disabilities themselves have as actors in disaster preparedness and response and that I think has really been the key factor that's, that's brought about this shift.
0: Yeah, it's so um, great to hear about the progress that is being made. Um, and you mentioned about the the way that we frame this being so important. And I think this this comes up quite often in conversation with many of our guests. I, I'm thinking back to even talking to Laurie Peake about how we talk about those who, who are marginalized. And she read an article in the Director's Corner recently about the vulnerability bearers and pointing out... That the most marginalized are forced to bear different burdens, right? Um, and so I think that's a, a a great way to introduce this topic for sure.
1: Yeah, and you know, whilst as you've highlighted, the progress has been made, there's still <laughs> progress to, me be, to be made to be made. And it's interesting how you've you've opened your statement with with the fact that you know not as not. All disabled people are disabled in the same way. And I think very often when we talk about marginalization that is precisely the problem. you know we just have this kind of um, wide brush and we just stroke everyone with it you know and decide that everyone is equally vulnerable. Particularly with disabilities, we know that, for example, people in wheelchairs, you know, they can't hide under a desk, right? Or kind of run down the stairs. And we know that visually impaired people um, may not necessarily be able to follow emergency lighting and transportation and shelter are not always um, accessible for people with different disabilities. So You've been working in the field for quite a number of years now. What do you think are the main challenges in making disaster risk reduction more equitable when it comes to disabilities?
2: Perhaps very briefly touching on what the progress has been made because I think that that leads us quite naturally into what what challenges still remain. So I think on the positive side there is now more recognition of the need to be deliberate about inclusion. So, even just a few years ago, I'd often hear people working in the context of disasters. When asked if people with disabilities are included in their programs, they would respond with some variation of, well, our services don't explicitly exclude people with disabilities, Uh as if this is enough. But as we know, it's not enough. Simply not deliberately excluding people with disabilities doesn't automatically result in them being fully included. But now we're really seeing that field practitioners do recognize that more deliberate and more explicit action is needed and people are now asking the why. Um, Another positive shift is that people with disabilities are no longer viewed only with this vulnerability lens. So a few years ago, people with disabilities were viewed largely as only being passive recipients of assistance in the context of disasters and conflict. But now increasingly they, they are being recognised as being important actors. And again, the question being asked now is the how, how to best partner with people with disabilities. It's largely no longer a question of if. Um, so that, that really brings me onto the two main challenges. There are many, but, but the two that I'll touch on are the ones that stand out mostly to me. Um, so we're no longer at the stage of having to advocate for inclusion. The recognition of the need to include people with disabilities is there, but there is still a perception that including people with disabilities in disaster preparedness and response, it's somehow specialised, or it's only possible where resources or capacities allow, or it only gets considered once the immediate, immediate emergency is passed. Basically, inclusion of people with disabilities is still not really seen as core business and core to everything we do. Um, but it is core business. And I think to make this more systemic across all disaster related interventions, we really need more of a investment in resources. We need more proactive engagement by leadership in the humanitarian system. We need building of capacity at all levels. And of course, engagement by people with disabilities themselves in designing, implementing and monitoring programs secondly, in terms of the key challenge, and I touched on this earlier, people with disabilities are often still seen as a homogenous group, all having the same needs and capacities. And as I mentioned earlier, people with disabilities are often not seen as also being men, women, coming from ethnic or religious minorities, mm. being older persons, children or LGBTI persons. So what we sometimes see is that people with disabilities are only seen for their disability and they're not seen for other aspects of their identity. So for example, in the field, I've seen many people with disabilities who've been provided with wheelchairs um, or other assistive devices, rehabilitation, all these disability specific services. But what we fail to recognize is that they are also young women who need access to sexual and reproductive health information. They're adults who want an opportunity to, opportunity to work as with any other adult. They're also older people who have valuable knowledge to share, or they're also children who need and have a right to education and to play with other children. So it's these needs that I see often being overlooked for people with disabilities because they're often seen one-dimensionally with only disability-related needs.
1: Isn't it amazing how intersectionality just kind of throws everyone and somehow it's just it's such a difficult thing to comprehend. So why is that? Why do you think we think of every well in this case marginalized group as a silo? What 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 it is what is wrong with us?
2: I think part of the challenge has actually been created by us who are advocating for these different issues. And one of the other positive shifts I'm seeing is that we're starting to recognize that and starting to address it. So what I think was happening a lot previously was that we were, in our work with the field, we were emphasizing either people with disabilities or women or children or older people, rather than coming together As advocates on all these different issues and and really working together to see what do we really mean by an inclusive rights-based response? What what does that really look like? And having some more coherent messaging and coherent guidance on on what that looks like. I think part of it is also, part of it is also in, in terms of reflecting on my experience in disability, part of it is also about when we're working with people with disabilities and looking at representation it's often the same power dynamics as you see in in other parts of society you'll have the the white men with physical disabilities are the ones who are speaking out rather than people with young women with intellectual disabilities for example or children with disabilities so it's even within these even within the disability work often repeating the the dynamics that are happening in broader
0: society. So given that not all disabilities are visible, as you've mentioned, um, people who are marginalised and in different ways are not homogenous groups, um, and we obviously need more intersectional conversations and approaches. So, do you have any examples of where this is happening and where it's been done well that you can share with us?
2: Yes, absolutely. I think there's there's been huge progress, and I think one of the things that is most successful is when you have people with disabilities themselves on these community based Mechanisms, like yeah. for example, I spent many years working in refugee response, and what I saw was the the camps and the urban locations, where there were community-based mechanisms that did have people with disabilities, on on the community committees, um, yeah. participating in designing the response. That's really where you see an inclusive response being delivered. Where it doesn't work so well is where people with disabilities really are just seen as as beneficiaries. Um, in terms of a very specific country, uh, I, yeah, I would need to would need to come back to you. There's been so many. I, I'm trying to think of what would be one really good example that stands out. But I think it's more about seeing across across all of the countries where the key success factor is really having people with disabilities participating
0: on these community mechanisms. I think one of the things that I'm interested in is when people in a non-homogeneous group are facing different discriminations and aggressions um, and they have different needs and agenda where you have those kind of needs competing um, and kind of vying for space in terms of what intervention will happen or what will be designed hopefully collaboratively. Um, have you seen that play out and, and how do people with disabilities advocate for their needs when when it kind of competes with, for space with other needs? Does that make sense?
2: It does. It does. It absolutely makes sense. And it's it's very much something I often get asked is, well, why do we need to pay so much attention to disability when there are so many different needs and yeah. we're already so overburdened? And I think, I mean, the key response from me to that is always that whatever we do to make programs more accessible to people with disabilities is going to be better for everybody. I mean, a, a very, very simple, overly simplistic example is, Ramps going up to um, latrines, for example, that's not mm-hmm. only better for people with disabilities, that's better for for many people who may have difficulty using stairs, for older people, for pregnant women, people with injuries, etc. Um, if we're delivering information about About risk or about services available in multiple formats, including visual, written, um, easy to read language, pictorial, etc. It's not only better for people with disabilities, it's also better for children, um, older persons, people who may be illiterate, people who use minority languages, etc., or even just people who are in an incredibly stressful situation and might have difficulty taking in big chunks of complex information. So what we do for people with disabilities makes the response better for for everybody. So it's not so much about competition, it's really about strengthening a response by looking at addressing barriers for people with disabilities, looking at gender equality, etc.
0: And I think that's why stories and narratives are so important and and kind of creating ways that people can empathize with others and look beyond their own needs to see um, these wider community benefits and the ways in which things that help one person actually help the group too.
2: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. And inclusive response is is going to be better for everybody. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, so to build up on what, Jason really just asked. Um, I guess it's the story of capacity, right? The story of strength. Because I think very often when we talk about disability, well, and you've highlighted this already, we only focus on weakness and vulnerability, right? But we have enough evidence to show that actually disabled people are very often an important resource for their families and communities, right? Particularly during times of crisis. So, how do you think, and what kind of stories do we need to tell to empower people with disabilities, and what it is we need to, t- to change in our stories in a way that we are telling them now? Mm-hmm. No, a great question, and I
2: I agree with you. It's absolutely, it's crucial that we look at how we're talking about persons with disabilities and and what language we're using. Mm and before i go on to stories perhaps just one more note on on language and this is something that i'm repeating all the time is about this language on special special needs so we often see people with disabilities being described as having special needs mm. and i mean we all have special needs at some point yeah. i am vegetarian i have a need for vegetarian food mm-hmm. um a woman who's pregnant has a need for certain healthcare services someone who's experienced trauma has a need for psychosocial support so why is it that we only label the needs of people with disabilities as being special yeah. um i th- so i think part of it is about telling stories that recognize that all all human beings have diverse needs, and that good programming is about recognising, responding to all of those needs. So, firstly, really avoiding this language of of special needs versus basic human needs, which which everybody has. Mm. Um, and more directly answering to your question on stories, so. Over the years in the field, I've met so many people with disabilities doing incredible work to support their communities and working alongside humanitarian actors to, to design and deliver a response that's better for everyone, as I was just mentioning. Um, some of the people that particularly stand out in my memory would be a Syrian refugee in Lebanon, who was working as a community volunteer supporting other refugees, both with and without disabilities. I also met a refugee woman with a disability in Rwanda, who had built a very successful tailoring business and is supporting her family and neighbors. Um, There was a young displaced woman with a disability in Ukraine, and she was very passionate about bringing together young people with and without disabilities from the displaced and host populations through sport. Um, There was a group of refugees with disabilities in Malawi who were working together with humanitarian actors in the refugee camp to establish an inclusive livelihoods program in agriculture, And, and there are so many more. So I think these are really the stories we need to be telling. And I think in addition to the types of stories we tell, we need to be looking at who is telling those stories. And what we really need to be seeing more of is people with disabilities themselves being given a platform to tell their own stories. And that I think is still really a substantial gap. We don't often hear from people with disabilities themselves, particularly about, about their capacities, about their active roles. If we hear with people, from people with disabilities themselves, they're often only given a space to talk about needs, not, not capacities and roles.
0: That's a really great point, and something I was thinking of as well was um, the language we use to speak about people with disabilities. And a lot of our listeners are researchers in the disaster field, or people um, you know studying uh, something related to disasters, and probably wondering what is the appropriate way to talk about people with disabilities, and um, because of all the the language that is offensive that is out there, and the way that um, we can frame things in very ableist ways, you know, so. Do you have like what's the key advice you give to people about about the language that we use or what to avoid?
2: Yeah. I mean the first key the very general key is to ask people with disabilities themselves because it often is very context specific. Yeah. So just asking very openly what what language should I be using? Yeah. Um some key do's and don'ts however that generally cut across are avoiding words that that really label people with disabilities as being somehow um, not having certain capacities. Like for example, we often see words like handicapped, um, crippled, confined to a wheelchair. That kind of language is really not helpful to move past this vulnerability lens. Um, Another key is to really have a look at the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities and in there you'll see set out the the rights-based language that we should be using, yeah. referring to persons with disabilities as persons first, yeah. really just avoiding words that that imply something negative
0: yeah.
2: about disability. I mean, disability is one aspect of diversity. It's it's not a negative.
1: Yeah. Wow. Thanks very much, Kirsten. This is really interesting, and it isn't it fascinating how not only we come back to vulnerability all the time, but it's basically, no matter what narrative we talk about, we emphasize over and over again that vulnerability is all about weakness, right? And that language and pretty much every sphere around vulnerability is about weakness. And how did we end up here? Uh, (laughs) I am not entirely sure. So thank you, Kirsten. Thank you for shedding the light on disability in disaster context. I'm sure our listeners have enjoyed listening to you as much as we did. Thank you very much. I enjoyed
0: a lot as well. Thanks so much, Kirsten. Just a reminder to all of you that we're um, publishing on Mondays, available wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us and tweet us at DisastersDecon and, and check us out on Instagram as well, DisastersDecon.
2: You've been listening to Ksenia, Jason and me, Kirsten Lang on Disasters Deconstructed podcast.